Last week, Ying kicked off a brand new collection called The Symbols of Christ. And what we're doing is we're taking a deep look at prominent symbols of the Christian faith throughout history and what it means for us as believers today. And so last Sunday, Ying talked about baptism and how it signifies death to our old selves and finding new life in Christ. And so today we're going to continue this collection by exploring the meal or what you may know as communion. Now, the first thing that we have to understand is that food was very important to Jesus. So listen, if food is very important to you, you are just like Jesus. Jesus was always eating. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was often recorded as either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I think it's safe to say that food was one of Jesus' top love languages, just like you and I. In fact, Jesus was eating and drinking with others so often that people actually started calling him a glutton and a drunkard. Like, you know if you're doing the Christian life right, if people are calling you a glutton or a drunkard. And so we see that meals played a very important role in Jesus's life. But we also see that meals play a really important role in our lives as well. They go beyond just nourishment for our bodies. They mean something to us. They're important to us. The idea of gathering around a table to eat and drink with others is a meaningful part of our existence. In fact, sharing tables is one of the most uniquely human things that we can do. No other creature in all of existence consumes its food at a table. Minus maybe Fig. Fig does consume his food at a table sometimes. He shouldn't. But anyway, the table becomes this place for connection, for friendship, for fellowship, and for intimacy. It's why some of our favorite memories in life are tied to a meal or a table setting with the people that we love the most. I think one of my most fond memories was actually during our honeymoon. Krista and I were in Croatia, and then we went to Italy, and we concluded our three-week-long honeymoon at the Amalfi Coast in Italy. And there's this one hotel that we were at that had this restaurant that oversaw all of the Amalfi Coast, and it was so beautiful. Actually, if you've seen the movie Tenet, you know that dinner scene when they're in Italy? That's actually exactly where we ate and sat at. And so we're, we're sitting, and there's this beautiful view of the Amalfi Coast. The sun is setting. They're bringing out this phenomenal food, some of the best food that I've ever eaten, and we're just enjoying each other's company. It was one of the most memorable meals and experiences of my life. There's just something about that moment that's captured in my memory that brings such fond experiences and feelings. And I imagine that for some of you, some of your favorite memories are tied to a meal where you're sitting and you're fellowshipping and interacting with and connecting with someone that you really, really love. And so the table is this place for connection, for friendship, and for intimacy. And I think one of the things that perhaps that we're missing out on most during this pandemic is eating with each other. There's something lost in our understanding of human connection when we neglect that. And it's perhaps why so many of us feel so disconnected during this season is because we're not able to eat with each other, to come to the table around a meal. I mean, it's precisely why even in our season of CGs, we're trying this thing called Munchmates, where on the off weeks when we're not meeting in community groups, we have lunch assignments, just eating with people and fellowshipping with them. No other agenda other than connection around food. 
right? And so we see that there's this emotional connection, this human experience that we tap into when we share a meal with another person. But there's also spiritual significance attached to the idea of sharing meals with each other. And as we'll read about today, Jesus chose a meal to be the primary way his disciples would remember him and what he did. I think right now we live in a time when the meal is becoming more and more neglected in our families, in our friendships, in our culture. Um, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors and Bible translators, he says the exponential rise of fast food meals means that there is little leisure for conversation. The vast explosion of restaurants is evidence that far less food preparation and cleanup takes place in homes. In many homes, the television set is the dominant presence at family meals, virtually eliminating personal relationships and conversations. The frequency with which Pre-prepared and frozen meals are used, erodes the culture of family recipes and common work. All this and more means that the meal is no longer easily accessible or natural as the setting in which to encounter the risen Christ in our ordinariness and dailiness. Come on, how true is that? You know, we were at Chick-fil-A a few years back, and I thought this was one of the most innovative things that they've ever done. We were eating our sandwiches, and next to us on the table was this box. And on top were these instructions, and the instructions said, if you put your cell phone in the box and you keep it there throughout your entire meal, you get a free ice cream cone at the end. I thought, wow, how sad is it that we live in a society where we need ice cream cones to lure us into actually connecting with each other and not putting this little black screen in front of us and between us. You know, in this fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit-disordered culture we find ourselves in, Christians need to recover the art of a slow meal around the table with people that we care about the most. And so today, I believe that God wants us to recapture the beauty and the importance of the meal. And we see it culminate in communion. And so today, we're going to explore Jesus' final meal with his disciples and the gift of communion that he leaves for the body of Christ to participate in, even to this day. So let's get into it, y'all. It's going to be so good. Why don't we open with a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, we invite you here today. We thank you, Lord, that you set a table before us. In fact, you use that imagery so often in your text, God, in your word. You set a table before us in the presence of our enemies, that you invite us into the the great banquet in the end of days. God, we thank you that you invite us to your table. And today, would you show us the importance of the meal? Would you show us the beauty of communion? And would you show us how we as sinners were welcomed to the table when no one else would welcome us. We love you, God. We invite you here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, it's significant that one of the last things Jesus wanted to do with his disciples before he went to the cross was to sit around the table together and eat. If we go to Luke twenty-two fourteen through 16, this is what the author records. When the hour came, 
Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, Dinner tables back then were very different than they are today. Today, we sit around a table, we're in chairs, we have a considerable amount of distance between each other. But back in the day, how people would sit around the table is they would actually lean down on the floor and they would be so close to each other. They would literally lean into each other's laps and they would be, there's a sense of intimacy around the, the meal table that was experienced back then. And so as important as meals are to us today, they held even greater significance in Jesus's day. Meals were significant because they were a sign of friendship, of acceptance, and of grace. In fact, it was considered a sacred honor when you were invited to someone's table. And it was a huge deal when you invited someone to yours. You know, the word companion that we use today that signifies friendship and camaraderie, companion comes from the Latin word come, which means together, and from the Latin word panis, which means bread. And so this word communion was literally created from this idea of coming together around bread to eat, to share a meal. It cultivates friendship and a deep acceptance. Tim Chester, who has a lot to say about communion and the table and the meal, he says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity, thus betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table with was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. I don't think you caught that. A meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. This is how powerful a meal was. You could have been completely at odds with someone else. You could be completely estranged, not have anything to do with them, not know them. But the simple act of inviting them to your table to share a meal opened the way to reconciliation. And we see this even in our own lives. And we'll see today that the way Jesus reconciles us to himself was through the table by inviting us to a meal. And so that we see in our own lives, this is the way Jesus reconciles us through a meal. But we have to understand something. Meals could both show the beauty of humanity as well as the ugliness of humanity. They could demonstrate both radical hospitality as well as radical segregation. I don't know if you ever experience anxiety, um, whether it's in elementary school or high school, during lunchtime, when you walk into the cafeteria and you see all these tables. And you know, some of them you are welcome at. You could sit, you could have a great time, you're completely accepted, but you know there are some tables where you're just not welcome. It would be so odd for you to sit there. You would be rejected. You might even be ostracized. People might even say, why are you sitting here, bro? I remember at my high school, you never sat with the jocks. Like That was just not a place you, d- you went to, and there was this segregation, radical segregation in the cafeteria. And 
in our country even, there's a deep and disturbing history of dictating who was allowed at the table and who wasn't. At the height of racial segregation in America, if you were black, there were places that you could eat and places you could not. Places where you were welcome and places where you were not. And not allowing someone to eat at your table was more than just a sign of preference. It was a denial of humanity and acceptance. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nguyen, he says, The table is the place of intimacy. Around the table, we discover each other. It's the place where we pray. It's the place where we ask, how was your day? It's the place where we eat and drink together and say, come on, take some more. It's the place of old and new stories. It is the place of smiles and tears. The table, too, is the place where distance is most painfully felt. It is the place where the children feel the tension between the parents where brothers and sisters express their anger and jealousies, where accusations are made and where plates and cups become instruments of violence. Around the table, we know whether there is friendship and community or hatred and division, precisely because the table is the place of intimacy for all the members of the household. It is also the place where the absence of that intimacy is most painfully revealed. Wow. In other words, who you invite to your table says a lot about you. It shows who you value, who you accept, and who you love the most. But it can also show who you exclude, who you overlook, who you reject, who you are divided from. You see, in Jesus' time, the religious had all kinds of ways of keeping people out. Like the religious would eat in a very particular way. Like imagine the snobbiest Yelp elite that you could think of eating with their pinky up and sipping their wine. Like you're right. Just imagine the snobbiest Yelp elite that you could think of. And the religious would eat this way and they would flaunt it for all of society to see. See the religious in Jesus's day ate with the stuffy aroma of self-righteousness and they were particular about who they allowed at their table, who they allowed to eat with them. And the reason why they ate this way wasn't just because they were trying to be snobby, just to be snobby. They believed that the way that God was going to bring national revival was through personal purity. In other words, only through the people who would do all the right religious things, who would fit the right mold, who would follow the rules of the Torah perfectly. And this is why they segregated so many people like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor, the sick, because they were ritually unclean and they considered themselves clean to be vessels of revival. But these people were hindrances to the kingdom of God. And so we see this radical segregation at the table in Jesus' time, where the religious with their nose stuck up would reject people that were on the outliers. But then Jesus shows up. And Jesus pisses everyone off. He flips the script. Jesus begins spending a lot of his time eating with all the people that the religious avoided. Jesus began inviting to his table all the people that the religious excluded from theirs. And he didn't see these people as hindrances to the kingdom of God. Rather, they were exactly the kind of people that the kingdom of God welcomed. We see in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. In other words, Jesus came for the outcasts, for the misfits, for the ones the religious labeled impure and rejected. He came to seek them and to save them. These are the very people that Jesus wanted to invite into the kingdom of God. But check this out. Jesus also explains how he will seek and save these people. In Luke 7, 34, I love this verse. The son of man came eating and drinking. I know sometimes we imagine Jesus coming in on this white horse with like a, a bolt like a, a of lightning and the sword and coming in all hard. But says the son of man comes in eating and drinking. In other words, the method of Jesus's salvific work most often happened through a shared meal at the table with all the people the religious wrote off and excluded. How does God choose to make himself known to humanity? Through table fellowship, by, by inviting people to his table to eat together, to drink together. This is why Jesus's first miracle was at a wedding feast, right? It wasn't opening blind eyes or causing the lame to walk. His first miracle was correcting a party foul, right? The wedding banquet, the party of all parties that's supposed to be so litty ran out of wine for the people to drink. And so Jesus says, bring me all those jugs of water. And he says, don't believe me. Just watch. Bam, changes it all to wine. And that's his first miracle. Why? Because food was so important to Jesus. This idea of the meal was so significant to him explaining what the kingdom was all about. The son of man came eating and drinking. And Jesus uses the meal to illustrate what the kingdom of God was like. You see, the table fellowship of Jesus was so countercultural and so scandalous by inviting the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the outcasts to eat with them. He was demonstrating that all were welcome to be a part of his kingdom. We see that all people that the religious turned away, Jesus invited in. Isn't it interesting that we make the gospel all about who to keep out? When actually the good news of the gospel is all about who's included in. Listen, church, the table is a lot bigger than you and I think. The religious were so concerned about who would taint their religion that they denied the very people that Jesus came to seek and to save. And isn't that what we do today? We intentionally, or maybe more often unintentionally, exclude the very people that Jesus would probably be eating and drinking with if he were here with us today. I firmly believe that if Jesus were alive in San Francisco today, he, I believe with all my heart, he would be in the Tenderloin. He would be in the Castro. He would be in the homeless encampments. He would be in the bars and the clubs on Sunday mornings where people are avoiding church. That's exactly where he would be. Why? Because the good news of the gospel is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done, you're invited to the table of God. 
And you don't have to be clean or have it all together or have it all figured out to come. The table is where reconciliation happens. The table is where healing happens. The table is where restoration happens. And we remember that if Jesus could welcome a person like me to his table to eat with him, surely he could welcome that person that I couldn't ever see sitting next to me in church. I want you to ask yourself this question. Who is the last person on earth that you can imagine sitting next to you in church? I mean, just imagine on a Sunday morning when we're able to gather again, you're sitting there at 99 back at the farm and there's an empty seat next to you. Who's one person that you could never imagine sitting next to you right there? That's the person that Jesus would have gone after. That's the person that Jesus even today is going after. I mean, it's in our namesake, Jesus leaving the 99 to go after the one. A few years back, I was um, talking to a pastor, one of my friends who lives in the Bible Belt, right? In the middle part of America where almost everybody is, you know, they go to church or they're, they're saved or they're believers. And we we're talking about our experiences pastoring there in the Bible Belt and me pastoring here in a city like San Francisco. And, and we got into this conversation. We noticed there's so many differences, nuances that are different because, you know, he's in a rural area. I'm in a city. And so we're just talking about our experiences. And he makes this this offhand comment, he says, it must be hard pastoring in a city like San Francisco. And so genuinely curious, I was like, oh, why is that? And he's like, what do you do when uh, gay people come to your church? I was like, "Um, I welcome them in. He's like, oh, you know, it's so weird because there's no one in our congregation that's gay. And I'm thinking, oh, you probably just don't know. They're probably not saying. Anyway, he's saying, what do you do when they come to your church? I said, I welcome them in. He said, what do you do if they don't change? I said, well, it's not my job to change them. It's not your job to change people either. And he's like, isn't it difficult pastoring people like that? I was like, no, what's, what's difficult is that people like us have misrepresented Jesus to people like them, which keeps them from coming to God. You know, isn't it interesting that we say things like, welcome home, you belong here, come as you are. But as soon as people come as they are, we give them an ultimatum. And maybe we don't say, you know, change or leave, but maybe we start acting different around them. Maybe we slowly start to distance ourselves from them, or maybe we exclude them from participating. You know, one of my biggest gripes is how the church has interacted with the, with the LGBTQ uh, community. You know, we always say, you're welcome here and you belong here. You know, we say that you are welcome, you belong, this is your home, this is your family. And what we're really saying is, you know, we'll accept your tithes, we'll accept your money, but you can't ever serve in the children's ministry, or you can't ever be on stage, or you can't ever lead worship or be on the worship team. You know, I feel like for many of us, we have misrepresented the heart of Jesus to this world. We say things like, you know, Jesus invited people to come as they are, sure, but they never left the same. And to that I say, it's not our job to change people. Only Holy Spirit can transform lives. You are incapable of transforming hearts. I'm incapable of changing people from the inside out. Our job is simply to invite people to the table 
to meet this Jesus for themselves. And Jesus will do whatever work he deems necessary, whatever work of healing or transforming or restoring or forgiving or restoration. That's up to Jesus. Our role is simply to bring people to the table to meet this Jesus. The table is the place where broken sinners find connection and belonging. And here's the thing that we have to realize. We're all broken sinners searching for belonging. We're all broken people in search of healing and restoration. We're all broken people in search of redemption. Listen, if you've ever felt like you don't belong in the church, like everyone else has this faith thing figured out except me, like everyone else has got it together, everyone is so pure and Christ-like except me, you couldn't be further from the truth. The table reminds us that we're all in need of God's grace, that we're all in need of God's healing, that we're all in need of God's restoration. And the table reminds us that we are all on equal footing before the mercy of God. You ever have an experience where you didn't like someone or, you know, you just thought you're so different from them. We can never find any common ground. I don't really want to spend time with them. For whatever reason, you just didn't like someone or click with someone. But then for some reason, you find yourselves um, at a meal together and you're just hanging out. You find yourselves eating together at a table together. And as soon as you took the time to sit down with them and share a meal with them, all of a sudden you saw them in a different light. All of a sudden you humanized them. All of a sudden, you realize that you have far more in common as human beings than you ever imagined. You experience connection and belonging. This is what the table does. Is that we come to the table, and instead of pointing at each other saying, oh, you're a sinner. Oh, you're impure. Oh my God, you're so far from God. We all realize that we are all in need of God's grace. And it doesn't become about me trying to transform their lives or me trying to be the savior in that person's heart. It becomes all of us coming together around the common purpose of meeting with Jesus who redeems and restores us to do the work that only he can do. And so we see that what Jesus came to do here on earth is most significantly shown in this meal, in this passage that we're reading from, the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal was this annual meal that the Jews ate in remembrance of the final plague in Egypt. If you've ever read through Exodus or you watched the Prince of Egypt movie, you remember the final plague that, that God sent upon the Egyptians was the, the plague of the death of the firstborn. And the angel of death was going from door to door all throughout Egypt, and he would kill the firstborn of each family. But any family that sacrificed a lamb and painted their doorways with the blood of the lamb, the angel would pass over. That's why it's called the Passover meal. And so Jews would eat this Passover meal every year to remember that, that the angel of death, that death and that slavery had passed over them because of God and that God rescued them from death and slavery in Egypt. And so we, we see that even when Jesus started his ministry, John the Baptist called Jesus, what? The Passover lamb. Jesus is connecting himself to this meal. 
I want us to look at Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28. This is what it says. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus is saying here is remember all, all those times that you sat together and you ate that Passover meal, recollecting the story of God passing over all those that had the, the blood of the lamb smeared over their doorpost. Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. And because my body was broken and my blood is spilled, death will now pass over you. Now you are rescued from slavery. Now you are redeemed and restored and healed. And now you have life. Jesus is saying, I'm here to do for you what you were unable to do for yourselves. I'm here to heal your brokenness. I'm here to restore you and make you whole. I'm here to forgive you and redeem you. I'm here to give you life abundantly. And this is the beauty of the meal and of communion. If you've ever sat through communion and thought, what is this like this random ritual that we're doing? I'm drinking blood, eating the body and the flesh. Like it's so weird. What is this all about? This is the beauty of the meal and of communion that as we sit around the table with people who are broken just like you and me, We remember that our Passover lamb, the one who was broken to make us whole, whose blood was spilled to make us clean, is there with us. And we all eat from one bread. We remember we're one body, the body that Jesus gave his body for. And as we drink from the one cup, we remember that we are all part of a new bloodline, the family of Christ. And all of a sudden, all the labels that the world would give us to divide us vanish at the table. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, gay, lesbian, straight, rich, poor, all these labels in the world that seem to divide us vanish at the table. And we're all invited as broken sinners in need of our Passover lamb. Hufflepuff, Slytherin, Gryffindor, all the things that would divide us now vanished. And now we're all coming before the Passover lamb in need of his healing and his restoration. We enter into table fellowship with our Savior and with one another. Isn't that powerful, church? Um, I just want to share one more thing, and then we'll, we're actually going to take communion in a little bit. So if you don't have the elements ready, go ahead and get that ready. But I want to go look at Matthew 26, verse 26, one more time. Just that first verse. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. Now, we see four verbs here describing what Jesus did at meals. Meaning that whenever he sat around the table with people, there are four verbs that describe what he did. And it's these four verbs, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. Eugene Peterson, he says, this is the shape of communion. This is the shape of the gospel. This is the shape of the Christian life, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. 
In fact, early on in the church, worship was defined by this fourfold Eucharistic shape. In fact, early Christians modeled their entire lives around the shape of this meal of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving. And this is what it means. Number one, Jesus takes what we bring to him. He takes. He takes our strengths, our weaknesses, our hunger, our thirst, our burdens, our worries, our fears, our pain, our heartaches, and our victories. He takes us as we are, all the beautiful parts of us, as well as all the ugly ones, the things that we want to hide from him and from one another. He takes it all. And it takes us in even when the world rejects us. But number two, Jesus blesses what we bring to him. Jesus lifts us up in blessing and thanksgiving to the Father, thankful for the good things in our lives, but also thanking God for the hard and the painful things because we know that all things work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus takes us in. Jesus blesses us, and then Jesus breaks what we bring to him. He breaks our pride. He breaks our selfishness. He breaks our sin. He breaks our neediness. He breaks all the things that we were never meant to hold on to, all the things that weigh us down. And finally, Jesus gives back what we bring to him. He renews us. He gives us new life and new hope. He restores dreams and passions. He gives us a new heart, taking, blessing, breaking, and giving as Jesus took the bread, as he blessed it, as he broke it and gave it out. So is the rhythm that our lives were meant to fall into. Transformation takes place at the table as we eat and drink the consecrated body and blood of Jesus. It's a resurrection meal. And so the beauty of the shape of this meal is that we could experience God taking us in, blessing us, breaking us, and giving back to us new life. But here's the really beautiful thing. The shape of this meal is not just what Jesus does for us. It's what we can do for one another. At the meal, we take people as they are without any reservations or judgments. At the meal, we can bless people, lift them up, and thank the Father for who they are. At the meal, we can break off all the names and labels the world has given people and call them loved and accepted instead. And at the table, we can give ourselves to them as Jesus gave himself to us, our time, our prayers, our energy, our stories, and our generosity. 99, I believe that God wants us to be a community that pursues table fellowship, a community that practices the art of sharing a meal, a community that welcomes anyone and everyone to come and fellowship with Jesus, a community that remembers the work of Jesus every time we eat and drink together. You know, let's live our lives in the rhythm of taking, of blessing, of breaking, and of giving. Let's be intentional about this with the people around us, with the people in our community. You know, one person in our community that I feel like does this really well, especially pre-COVID, is Seabell. You know, if you've ever been invited to Seabell's table, she cooks amazing food, often cooking way more than you can actually eat. 
And there's this beautiful table fellowship that happens when she invites you to a meal. And I believe all of us are called to that calling. To be ones who usher in table fellowship. Not just for the people in our community, for the people that the religious would otherwise exclude. For the people and the outliers, the misfits, the people that feel rejected and thrown away by the world. This is the beauty of the meal, of the table. Henry Nguyen, he says, we all need to eat and drink to stay alive. But having a meal is more than eating and drinking. It is celebrating the gifts of life we share. A meal together is one of the most intimate and sacred human events. Around the table, we come vulnerable, filling one another's plates and cups and encouraging one another to eat and drink. Much more happens in a meal than satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Around the table, we become family, friends, community. Yes, a body. At the end of the story, the Bible tells us that there will be a great banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of God's people are together in harmony and in celebration, in fellowship with one another and with God. And we experience full communion as it was meant from the start with God, with one another, and with all of creation. May every meal we share be a glimpse of this great banquet of the kingdom that is to come. May every meal that we share be a foretaste of the shalom of God permeating throughout all of creation. You know, the Celts, they called these meals thin places. Kind of ironic because when you're at a meal, you're not really getting thin. But the Celts used to call these meals thin places where the veil between heaven and earth seems exceedingly thin. May every meal we share become a thin place. May every meal we share be a taste of heaven on earth.